chapter 2, verse 14, and Luke chapter 7 today. Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 7. One of the hardest parts of Christmas is relationships. Some of you are already dreading seeing her or him or that group part again. Sometimes you look at them and wonder, how are we related again? It's not just who you have to see during Christmas that is difficult. It's also who you can see. See, some Sometimes it's also a very confrontational time for many families. But Jesus brings peace. And one of the greatest verses in Christmas that is often just quickly said, and the words are not often dissected, is what we've been looking at in Luke 2.14. And the verse is, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. We did this last week, and you passed the cult test. You did a very job of reciting it with So let's do it again. Let's recite this verse together, Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Today we're going to look at peace on earth. The peace on earth factor that fits into it. Here's the one thing about this verse and all the topics. The peace is actually something that you have a 100% control over in your life. 100% control about peace in your life is really limited up to you and the decisions you make. Uh, a few years ago, we went as a church mission trip and went to South Africa. Now, South Africa, being a former British colony or whatever it is and stuff, it's one of, the, I think, only four countries in the world that drives up the wrong side. And, and they kind of steered me on the run. I said, now I knew this. I had two things I wanted to see going to South Africa that weren't spiritually related. One, because it's on the southern hemisphere, I wanted to watch water go down the drain the wrong way. If you're in the science, you know that when you go to the southern hemisphere, it goes down the opposite way it does here. Now you didn't know that, did you? The other thing I wanted to do was ride in a car in the front seat with the wheel on the wrong side. So I hope people don't came from South Africa and pick up group and they picked us up at the airport and everything. I, I made sure I was going to sit in the front. So I sat in the front seat, and he's over here on the other side with a stick and everything backwards, and I'm kind of like this and insane. And we get out in the road, and he completely freaked me out. And you mark my whole life. The person in the front left has a steering wheel. We're driving, and I'm like, I'm like, well, wait a second, everything. So I, I, after that, I'm like, I can't sit in the front. So every week, every day, we would drive over to this other group and do ministry and uh, in this little area where we were assigned to and stuff. And uh, I got used to seeing the wheel on the wrong side. And then one time we were coming back, and I was tired. We'd been out there all day doing the day, doing work and everything. And uh, I was talking with my wife and everything, and I just kind of forgot. And they're driving on the roads, and they drive insane. I mean, they just have no fear of death, I guess. And nobody dies in South Africa and everything. And I just kind of forgot where I was at and looked up, and there was a truck coming, and everything was flipped. And for just a few seconds, Milliseconds, I thought I was going to die, and so in front of me, the missionary driving, and I went, <laughs> That's literally what I said. Here. It is amazing what comes out of your mouth when you think you're going to die. Uh, for me, it's some sort of utterance of speaking in tongues or something. I don't know. <laughs> but I say all that, and this is why so many people's lives, maybe it's here today, are, the word peace does not describe them. Their, their lives are chaotic. Their lives are constantly one drama or one confusing point to the next and everything. And the reason? You're doing it wrong. 
You're doing life wrong. You are driving on the wrong side of the road. I asked the missionary that, and he said, when you come back to uh, America and stuff, is it hard to get used to? And he says, yeah, for about a week. It's a very dangerous thing. You've got to come back, and your whole mindset is different, the way you can turn and everything, and you have to reprogram your mind. Today, maybe you don't even have your mind programmed out Because if you look at your life, and if the word peace does not describe it, may I politely, calmly suggest to you today that you're driving on the wrong side of the road? Our Luke 2.14 thought today is this, if you're taking notes. Jesus brought the gift of peaceful relationships. He brought the gift of peaceful relationships. If your life, if your relationships in life are not peaceful, and the first right, well, but you don't have my sister. If you weren't raised with my father and everything else like that. No, it does not matter what other people do. Listen, peace in your life is not brought by other people. Peace in your life is brought by you. It's brought by decisions you make. It's brought by choices you make. It does not matter what someone else does in your life. If your relationships in life, if the word peace does not describe them, and instead words like chaos, destructive, or codependency describe them, God is not the author of your life. Because God is not the author of confusion. God is not the author of chaos. If this is not what you would describe your relationships as peaceful, may I suggest to you again, you're driving on the wrong side of the road. You're doing something wrong. You see that word in the Luke 2, 14, peace. That word in peace literally means peace between individuals. Oh, we read that first, we often think about necessarily peace and government. And again, there will come a time in the future when Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom. There will be peace on this earth. That will be the only time. But that's not what Jesus meant. That's not what the, the, the angels meant there when they were speaking. It's peace between individuals, exempt from the rage and havoc of war. Is that your marriage? Does that word describe you and your children? Does that word describe you and other people in your relationships? You see, peace is the result of following Jesus. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you today as a Baptist preacher, it is the only way you're going to have peace. All the other world's methods and ideas and, and philosophies will never bring you the same peace that Jesus brings you today. Now, I didn't say you wouldn't have problems or anything else, but following Jesus, if you're following Jesus correctly, peace is inevitable. Now, listen, it starts with salvation. Nothing's more important than that. It's when you get your relationship between you and God right, and the only way that can be achieved is when you accept Christ as your personal Savior. Just to be clarified, some people say, well, I didn't know Jesus was lost. I have to find Jesus or anything. But Jesus isn't lost. You're lost. You are lost and separated from God. You are lost and you need Jesus. You were lost in your sin. You were lost from him. And you are lost in chaos. And it starts with Jesus. Now I want to give you three things just to kind of build on this because I'm always giving you three things. One of these days I'm going to say two and it's going to freak you out. If you come Sunday night, I say two periodically. And people always say two. Where's the third one? I want to give you three things about factors in chaotic relationships. If you find relationships, somebody who's constantly in chaos, it's either all three or one of these three. 
Number one, they all start with I, by the way, because I have too much time on my hands. Number one is incorrect intimacy. Incorrect intimacy. If there is one overriding source of failed marriages, failed relationships, and conflict, it is the inability to have a deep intimacy. And it all results from the incorrect biblical use that God intended for physical intimacy. Look, I don't even have to give verses anymore. I don't have to quote the Bible about this anymore because they've been doing statistics on this, cultural statistics. The Center for Disease Control has been doing statistics. The Census Department has been doing statistics. Other non-Christian groups, throw this little chart up here. This is an amazing chart. Not a Christian chart. You can barely see it. But I've got all these charts and graphs I can show you. And this simple chart here is the last, it's broken down into three different age groups. But it's women who have successful marriages who have physical relationships other than their spouse. The ones that say zero, 80 to 90%. One partner other than your spouse, two partners, three to four, five, 10, 21 partners. You see the decline that takes place in it. I also have other charts I can show you. The statistics of people who live together and the divorce rate. I mean, it's amazing. If you want to get divorced, live with somebody before. I'm not even going to get into the psychological reasons why. These are just facts. And I can show you chart after chart, government information that shows you if you just stick with one man and one woman your entire life, your life will be so much better. I mean, I haven't even opened the Bible on this part. So well, I don't know if I believe the Bible. When I look at these statistics and I see all of these factors in it, this to me points that the Bible knows more about this world than we do. Because our concept is do as much as you want and everything, and, and, and there's no problem. And look, I haven't even mentioned the word disease. I didn't mention abortion, unplanned pregnancies. I didn't mention the word child support or divorce. The facts are in. The Bible's way on physical intimacy is right, and everything we've been doing outside of it creates chaos and confusion.
And when I read the Bible and Paul lists off all these people, adulterers and fornicators and, 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 and homosexuals and stuff, and Paul at the end of that, that in 1 Corinthians says, and such were some of you that you can be saved and you can be set free, I get a whole group of people, oh, he's a compromiser. He's a liberal. And then the other half of the churches today, I have so many people who don't like the fact that I'm very adamant on taking a biblical stance that God has designed physical intimacy between one man and one woman only, and anything outside of marriage is sin and destructive, and two dudes and two girls together is destructive to them and destructive to our culture, and by the way, it's also sin that I get people that push back and go, well, I don't want to hear that, let's go to another church, Martha. And there's two extremes on this issue, the let's send everybody to hell and there is no grace, and the other is, you're okay, I'm okay, and let's never change this. And if you keep preaching this way, Pastor Steve, a lot of the younger generation is going to leave and different things like that. And here's what I believe is we're going to look at today. Jesus has a very clear standard, but Jesus also offers forgiveness and grace. In fact, I put it in your notes. I'm not going to read from it. You want to know what Jesus thinks about this issue today? Uh, in Revelation 2, we're going to look at Revelation 3 tonight. So this is kind of my mind. But in Revelation 2, verses 19 through 25, Jesus addresses the church at Thyatira. And it is the apostasy church. And there was a woman by, he, he calls her Jezebel. It might not be her name. It's probably a pseudonym. If you don't like the woman, you call her Hussy or Jezebel. And this Jezebel was a prophetess. And she was introducing teaching into this church in Revelation 2. And it was basically about a pagan style of worship where there was sexual activity going on. And she was introducing this to the church. And Jesus says to her, and says this, tell her this. I've given her time to repent. And if she doesn't repent, he says this in verse 21. Uh, if he doesn't repent of her fornication, he says in verse 22, here's some irony. I will cast her into her sick bed. There's irony because she was using a bed for her immorality. And Jesus says, if she does not change, I think Jesus would probably say this to the typical American church and the typical American Christian. I have been giving you time and patience to get this issue right. If you don't get it right, the judgment of God will come. And, and don't believe me, Revelation 2, 23, he says this. Thou that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. He says, those that go involved in this issue and, and follow her false teachings, they are going to be in chaos and tribulation with her. You see, if we could get this issue right, how different would Christmas be? How different would all family gatherings be? If we could just understand God's biblical role for physical intimacy. Here's the thing about it. It works every time it's tried. Number two. Let's switch topics. Inherited issues. Um, we are all the byproducts of families. This I'm more of a Freudian psychologically than other people. But we're all the byproducts because of our moms and our parents and what they say. I plead with you. You come from a chaotic home. You need help. You, you need to talk to people. You, you might need to see a, a, a therapist. Some people do need some medication periodically. You need some balance. You might need a mentor in your life. If you're here and your mom was a, what's, what's the correct word, Mark, for crazy? Um, what was it? 
enough, okay. And, and their home is just insane because of her. So much of that is going to be inherited on you. You need to make a direct effort to not be like that. Um, don't pass on the craziness. You know, with our little babies, and uh, they were conceived, and they didn't live with their mom really more than a couple days and stuff, both of them and stuff. That's one of our goals with their lives, and the craziness, and the cycle of chaos and sin that was in their lives. You know what's you know what's sad? Both with two moms and stuff. Both of those moms, our biological moms, both of them were raised in foster care too, and both of their moms were also raised in foster care. And there's a cycle that goes, and you know what is our intention to break that cycle. And uh, I, I believe with Jesus and two years worth of spankings. <laughs> now you know that's a joke. He's like, oh. That's, that's a joke, mostly. Listen, evaluate your own life. Don't pass on the craziness your mom, your dad, that whole home you were raised in. Don't pass it on to the next generation. It's important. Number three, factors in chaos, income imbalance. And basically, I mean this. Your money, what you do, and why you do it is out of balance. Instead of your job and your money and everything, being a source of taking care of your family, being a source of blessing your family, being a source of blessing other people, you have decided to take your income, your job, and everything else, and you've made it the source of your self-esteem and your purpose. Your job will never hug you back, and your money will never cure anything. And if you don't believe me, look at the rich and the famous and the celebrities in our culture. Would you define most of these people as having calm, peaceful relationships and well-balanced homes? I mean, some of them, I mean, how many times? Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, she was beautiful in the 50s. You see that cat on the haunted room and everything? She, I, I can't watch it. I have to repent. She's just so beautiful. And she was so rich. But she was married how many times? All right, some of you know more than I do. So rich, beautiful, money, everything does not equal peace, does it? So maybe we need to get a balance on why God gave us a job and why God gave us the money and what the true purpose of it is. In Luke chapter 7, we're going to be today, we meet a woman with all three of these problems. All three of these. She is a prostitute. And she does it for money, of course. So right there, she has an intimacy problem, and she also has a problem with putting money in its right place. And she's also probably there, I'm going to read into the Bible here, but she's also probably there because somebody did something to her. Somebody did something, or she inherited some issue. And in Luke 7, Jesus gives her one of the greatest gifts anyone could ever have, peace. So join me as we break this down. Luke 7. In verse 36. And one of the Pharisees, we're going to find out later in verse 40, his name is Simon. And one of the Pharisees desired that he would eat with him. This is always a big deal being invited to a Pharisee's home and meal and stuff like that. I, I kind of get, I kind of always, when I hear this, my mind always goes to our church gatherings that, that we kind of gather together and everything else. And, I always wonder how exclusive are we and how unwelcoming to people. 
And he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Uh, you need to understand this. They're not sitting at a table like we do in traditional. They're kind of sitting on pillows and everything, and they're lying down, and their feet would kind of be behind them as they lie down and stuff like that. That's important because this is what happens here in verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner. Uh, that word sinner is a label. It was a nice way of saying prostitute. Now, it's amazing the speculation that goes into this. And I'm going to speculate myself on who this woman is. Uh, some say that she is the woman caught in adultery. Remember that in John chapter 11? They stoned her and Jesus says who's without stone. Because it does fit in the timeline that that woman might have been a prostitute and, and this is her. Others speculate that she's Mary Magdalene. Uh, in the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 2, Mary Magdalene is mentioned. There is absolutely no proof of who it is. I love the idea, and this is just my opinion, I love the idea that it's Mary Magdalene, and that it's Mary Magdalene who was their woman caught in adultery in John 11, and after Jesus stands up for her and takes care of her, here she is coming to Jesus. I just love the idea, and then she becomes one of Jesus' most devout, faithful, important followers. I love that idea. When we get to heaven, it, it could be three different women, it could be Mary, it could be... The story basically stands on its own from that point. Let's continue. And she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house. Okay, she knows he's there. She has a purpose what she's going to do. And she has with her an alabaster box of ointment. Now, in John chapter 12, Mary, who is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, remember John 11, Lazarus is raised. Mary will take an ointment. They were a wealthy family. She'll take some ointment and she will anoint Jesus' head. What she is literally symbolically doing, she knows he's going to die. She is anointing him for burial. This woman is not doing that. She's going to put this perfume on Jesus' feet. Now, why is this perfume important? Well, this perfume had two purposes. One, this is how she was probably paid. Uh, many of her customers were adults. Would not necessarily pay her in money, but they would instead pay her with perfume. The second reason why this perfume, and she's breaking this in power, is important. Again, for adults, her job was to allure men. Part of the alluring ladies, part of your part of your way you trap a man, I mean, get a man, I mean, attract a man. The way you do, besides makeup and everything, is what? Smell. Part of her perfume is part of her business. And she's going to break this over Jesus, and she's giving up this. It's a symbolism that she's giving up her lifestyle, and she's giving, but she's giving up this whole culture. So back to in verse 38, and stood at his feet behind him. Remember, he's laying down, so it's a little bit different. Stood at his feet behind him, weeping. Now, some say this might have been at night, and so it's dimly lit. And, and a lot of people would gather to watch these meals because there would be conversation going on. And so you've got to think, this is not unusual there would be a crowd, but she would not normally be there, a prostitute that everyone knows. And this is how I see her, that Jesus is there, and she's got this vial, and she's kind of snuck into the room, and she's gotten by a few people, and somebody gave her a dirty look. What is that person doing there? And since this is some you know, religious fake people, I'm sure some guy would oh, well, my wife here. And stuff like that. And she is snuck in. And you need the picture here in this verse as we're reading it. She, I see her kind of rocking back and forth holding this because she's crying. And she's like, Wait, where's my chance? Where's my chance? I want to. And, and she's looking for her opportunity here. And what does she do? Weeping. 
And she just rushes in and she, she began to wash. The word wash there means rain. She rained down tears. And she began to wash his feet with tears and wipe them with the hairs of her head. That was a big no-no. A woman to show her hair, in fact, in Middle Eastern culture now, a woman to show her hair in public was, was a sign that you were a, a prostitute, was a sign that you were a sinner, was a sign that you, and, and she is open. Now, there could be, she doesn't know this. There, that's possibly, I, I, I don't know if that's really the answer. I think that her answer is this, she just doesn't care anymore. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Her focus, her intent is on Jesus. And what does she do here? And kissed his feet. And that's pretty gross. And that's one of the worst doctors on the planet. I've never been a podiatrist. You could choose to operate and focus your entire life on one particular part of the body, and you choose podiatry. Nobody comes to you as a podiatrist. Hey, my feet are perfect. Want to see? No. Hey, there's something green. That's when they come, right? Feet are gross. Jesus wore sandals. It was a dusty, dirty road. It's extra, triple gross. And began to kiss the feet and anoint them with the ointment. Now, watch verse 39. And when the Pharisees, which had hidden themselves, which spake unto themselves, saying, This man, Jesus, he were a prophet, he would have known who and what man and woman this is that touches them, for she is a sinner. Nice church people. Can I ask you? Is this you? She's it, it, a sinner. She's gross. That type of person, I mean, if Jesus was really a man of God, he would never let this type of person touch his feet and kiss them and everything. Is this you? It's amazing before you come to know Christ and Jesus saves you and changes your whole life and gets you all cleaned up and you get out of this whole lifestyle you used to be. And it's amazing how many people used to be some of these horrible things. Now after 20, 30 years, you tend to look down at some of the people in the same issues and the same problems that you've had in your life. But I say to you this day, you're a very nice looking crowd. We've already took up the offering, right? You're a very nice looking crowd. You're some of the best probably in our community. Uh, many of you probably, uh, other than Dan, have never been in a jail cell, right, Dan? Dan was a sheriff, so uh, that's why. But never been in a jail cell, never gone through some of this and everything else. It is very easy for us to kind of become a, a little subculture ghetto and then look at the world and go, ooh, look at that. Ooh, look at those people and everything else. Is this you? Are you one of the Pharisees who would be sitting there? Instead of seeing a woman getting her life right with God, instead of a woman seeing that hole that was filled, instead of seeing a, a little girl who grew up without a dad or maybe had something horrible done to her and is involved in this god-awful business of prostitution, instead of rejoicing that her life was finally getting right and something is happening, would you be one of these people that go, ooh, I don't want to focus on Simon, so we're going to skip down to verse 45. But in verses 40 through 44, Jesus gives a parable. And basically, it's a parable of two people who owe somebody money. And, and, and one owes 500 pence instead of doing And then one owes 50. And he asks them, you know, who would be more generous? Who would be more thankful if they were forgiven? And then Simon says, of course, the person who owes 500. Right? If, if Visa came to you and said today, you know, you owe $10,000 on Visa, holy cow, how did you do that? But 
you owe $10,000 of Visa, and Visa said, okay, it's wiped out. And then they went to the person sitting next to you, and they owed like $10 on Visa, and they said, that's wiped out. One of you is going to shout and rejoice, and one of you is just going to go, oh, okay. And that's kind of what he's saying here is that she's a horrible wife and done some horrible things, and the person who's got more forgiven is going to be more grateful for him. So look at verse 45. Jesus rebukes them. Thou gavest me no kiss when he came in, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. Um, forgiveness and worship. Put this up Forgiven people worship easily. Forgiven people worship easily. I have a hard time worshiping. I have a hard time praising God. I have a hard time humbling myself before Jesus. I have a hard time praying, which is part of worship. I have a hard time giving. Giving. The reason, maybe, is that you're not forgiven. If you truly understand what your sin is and where you were destined and how difficult of a life you would have had without Jesus, you would fall on your knees and you would worship and you would give everything you had to the Lord and Savior. In verse 46, My head with oil didst thou not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he saith unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. By the way, only God would do this. He's making a mistake that he is done. In verse 49, and they which sat at me with him began to say within himself, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? How can you miss? You, you, you miss the tree because of the forest. How can you miss seeing this amazing thing take place in this woman's life? She's going to be changed forever from going to selling her body, from going to denigrating herself and everything and all the things that come with it and everything. She's going to have a completely different change. And your concept is not to focus on the person, but to get into some theological dispute or get into some uh, proper place of when and what day sins should be forgiven. This woman was saved and everything was changed about her. That is the focus. Our, our bus kids. I, I went and picked up one of our families because they didn't have a vehicle to get her. And so I stupidly, I don't know if that's a word this time, but I stupidly volunteered and I went down and picked up all six of those boys. Man, those boys are crazy. So I picked them up, brought them to their mom and everything and stuff like that. You know, you see those little boys, of course, in the setting. One of our little boys is right over where you're at, Dan, there in Iran. We're not getting lying, and he's looking out the window, and I said, Come over here, come over here. And he goes, No, I literally, I want to go throw it through the window. I'm telling you, no, I'm three times your size. I'm going to crush you. And that's when I went, Sandra! And <laughs> <laughs> you, no, yeah, well, she's great. Did you, you see these kids? You see those? And you go, Oh, they must have come in and destroyed things. If that's your focus, you're missing it. You know what they are? They're going to be somebody's future mom and dad. And if they come to know Christ as their personal Savior, we have a chance of waiting. And some of them, the, 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 the repetitive lives, some of them come from really good homes and stuff, but some of them come from very dysfunctional, chaotic homes. So watch what he does here in verse 50. He thought maybe I was exaggerating his concept of peace. Look at verse 50 when he says to her, 
And he saith unto the woman, Thy faith, whether I am going to heaven, it's through faith, not works. He says, Thy faith has saved thee. And what does he say to her? Go in peace. And if you look up the word, it's the exact same peace as Luke 2.14. It's the exact same original language. It's the exact same peace. He says, your sins are forgiven. Go and now experience peace. Amen? Let me say this about peace. And then we'll close. Jesus brings peace to three groups. Number one, humble followers. The woman humbled herself culturally doing this. She humbled herself economically. She gave up everything that she had been paid. Who knows how much, that's probably how she made her living. What is she going to do next? She humbled herself publicly. People scorned her and looked at her. But Jesus gave her everything she possibly needed. And she didn't care who knew. Listen, humility will change your relationships. You, you, you want to change your relationship? Become a servant. Start serving. It's hard to hate somebody who serves you. Only a psychopath would do that. It's hard to be disgusted. It's hard to say things about somebody's grandkids who, who's serving you. But the humility that changes everything is when you come to know Christ as your personal Savior. Instead of fighting for your rights, you just want to serve. Instead of demanding things from God, you just want anything He has for you because what He has is best. Jesus brings peace to humble followers. Number two, repentant seekers. This woman walked away. I don't know if she walked away into the poverty or not, but she walked away from a lifestyle. She changed. She repented. Peace requires a change. I mean, you keep driving on the wrong side and you keep getting all this confusion and everything. Eventually, something's got to change in your life. And I suggest to you today, the word change and the word repentance is the same word. Let me just throw this at you. Maybe it's not for this crowd. Maybe it's more of an 11 o'clock point. But do not interpret God's grace as approval. Meaning, well, you know, Nothing's going wrong. Everything's okay. I mean, I've got this, and I, 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 money's my God, and, and I've been sleeping around this, living together, and stuff like this. There's something my wife doesn't know about. God hasn't killed me. In fact, uh, we had a good year this year. Things are going real well. This is really good. Do not interpret the fact that God has given you grace as God's approval. What God has given you is grace as an opportunity to repent and to change. Do not trample on that grace. What has happened to the church today? Well, this was previous generations. I, the, 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 the confessing church was part of the Reformation. And they had three points that were part of the Reformation. Three points that they based on. Uh, solus Christus, which means Christ Jesus alone is Lord. Uh, that was an insult to the Pope. Pope. And, and many uh, of our brothers and sisters in Christ were killed because they believed that. Because they, they were not saying it wasn't Jesus and the Pope. Solus Christus. The next one was Solus Scripture. That makes complete sense to us. But they were saying that Holy Scripture alone is the rule. Go, go back, Greg. Go back. And they were saying that that was the rule of it. And then the last one. Oh, on. <coughs> there you go. Solus Grace. It's not projecting. There it goes. Yes, <laughs> I had a tough day last yesterday. So this grace, radio. And it means that we are to live by grace alone. And part of that, because we're supposed to live by grace alone, they said this. This was part of this. 
that we are called to a holy life. Personal holiness is vastly not preached on in most churches today. A demand that people embrace God's holiness, embrace God's way for physical intimacy, and for what money is supposed to be. That is missing in too many churches today, and we wonder why we're in the situation we are today. Look, I, when the divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate out of the church, there's a problem not in the world, there's a problem in the church. When the immorality and living together and adultery and all sorts of things are the same as it is in the church, as it is out of the church, the problem isn't the world, the problem is the church. And how dare we stick our finger in, in the gay culture movement? How dare we stick our finger in this millennial culture and tell them to start, live, stop living together and stop shacking up when we can't get our own lives right? If, the, if America's going to change, it needs to change in the church. And if I lose you today, I'm sorry, but let me declare this to you. God's way is one man and one woman in marriage forever. If that spouse passes away, you are free to remarry. But we are, we are walking away from biblical truth. Truths people die for. Somebody's probably thinking, maybe I should be a Methodist. It's time to repent. You made a huge mistakes in your life in the past. You know what to do? You repent, you come to Jesus. You know what he's going to do? He forgives you. So what do I do now? From this day forward, do it right. I don't care what you did Saturday night. I care what you're going to do tomorrow. I don't care what you do tonight. And lastly, number three. This is good. Number three. It's emotional believers. There it is. Emotional believers. Uh, let me say this about emotions. Emotion is not faith. Listen to me. Emotion is not faith. Say amen. But faith creates emotions. Believers are emotional. The emotion that I'm focusing on is the emotion that comes after repentance, after salvation. Verse 38 says that she was weeping because she saw her sin, but she also saw what Jesus was going to do for her, the, the love and the forgiveness he was offering. He was the only man that ever loved her and didn't want anything from her. And because of that, she began to wipe his feet and cry on his, on his feet. The tears rained down on Jesus' feet from her. May I ask you this question? When is the last time your sin made tears come from your eyes? When is the last time what you did to somebody or what you did to God made you hit an altar, made you hit where you're in your bedroom and get down on your face before God and the tears rain down. But now let me get even more personal. When is the last time the destructive force of sin that is taking over our culture and is probably part of your grandchildren's lives and is involved enough, when is the last time that destructive force has drove you to your knees and cried out to God and tears have rained down for somebody else's sin? 
This part isn't that difficult sometimes, especially when you get caught. Right? When you get caught doing something you're not supposed to. Oh, the tears flow easily, don't they? Listen, judge yourself privately and you won't be judged publicly. But when is the last time you got down on your knees and you're just brokenhearted? For what's going on in the world today? May I say, I find myself often just asking God, when are you going to judge? When are you going to judge? But maybe instead of asking God, when is he going to judge? Maybe I should be asking God, when are you going to use me? When are you going to use me to change things? I'm going to tell a story, and maybe this will offend somebody. I don't mean to offend you. I'm a big believer that men should act like men. Amen? Masculinity is not toxic. That masculinity is the answer to so many of our problems. True masculinity. And, uh, it drives me crazy when I see this 20-something generation in skinny jeans and prancing around all sissy and everything else. I just want to grab them and say, act like a man. Men are supposed to be tough. Men are supposed to be strong. Men are supposed to be fighting. I mean, they're... But God convicted me of my attitude. We were getting, finishing up, setting up, and it was late at night. They were all finishing up, and Starbucks sent over coffee for the shoe distribution. That was very nice of them. But then walked this typical Starbucks employee, about 23-year-old and stuff like this. I mean, my, any of my three little girls had more masculinity than this guy. His manners and the way he talks and everything. And I was setting up the, the cushions out there because that's half of what I do here is fix those stupid cushions out there. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, would you act like a man? I think if my dad had 10 minutes with you, he would just, anyways. And then I thought, Maybe he didn't have a dad he spent 10 minutes with him. And maybe the last thing he needs is me looking down my nose at him. And maybe that's not how Jesus would respond to him. And maybe Jesus would have a broken heart for him and love. That wasn't in my notes, I'm just confessing. Jesus brought the gift of peaceful relationships. And the reason so many of our relationships are so dysfunctional and not peaceful. Driving on the wrong side of the road. You're doing it wrong. You're not doing it God's way. I love history. Once somebody once time told me and said, uh, I don't have to go to history class, I can just hear you preach. Because I use so many examples from history. I love history. In fact, this was weird. Somebody thinks your pastor is really weird. Uh, we were in here because there was food, so I was in there. And uh, one of the other people started talking, and they, uh, they were talking about, well, what? I love history, World War II, so you know that you have to know a lot about Hitler. And they said, well, what's the kind of Hitler like? And the one that defected. And I said, well, are you talking? And I just jumped in their house. I said, I said, you had Rudolf Hess, and he left in 1942 and flew a plane into Scotland, and he was captured.
I said, well, I like history and stuff. So anyways, that, that wasn't funny, but I thought it was <laughs> But let me tell you a history story. And I love this. It was December 24th, 1914. Almost midnight. And World War I was just months into it. And what originally was thought of would be an easy victory on both sides had quickly turned into a, a bloodbath of trenches. Millions of men had already died in just months. And both sides realized really quickly after that that they were in for a battle. And this would be a costly endeavor. But on Christmas Eve 1914, unplanned, along trench lines that went miles and miles and miles, the guns were silent. The English weren't expecting to do anything on Christmas Day. They didn't know what the, the Germans would do. But somewhere right around midnight on Christmas Eve, and it was turning Christmas on the trenches, one German, in the quietness, began to sing in German, silently. And then another German joined in, and the, the, the sound traveled across the trenches, and then the English, knowing the tune, began to sing in silently, began to sing it also in English, until they said, one person said it was a, a chorus of bass men's voices singing in the trenches, one half in German and other in English. And then because people knew different languages, they kind of swapped out. And that night and that day on Christmas Day of 1914, in the midst of one of the worst wars ever on this planet, the bloodiest, peace broke out. It wasn't planned by any government. It wasn't planned by any generals. But the men came out of their, their trenches and they met there in the middle of no man's land. And that day at Christmas Day, they actually exchanged gifts between each other. They actually had a soccer game. The Germans won two to one. But that day, at least for one day for the next four years, there was peace. And the words were silent night, holy night. All is calm. All is bright. Round young virgin, mother, mother and child. Holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace. No government, no military, no general could ever bring peace like that. Except for Jesus. In your family, you can try Dr. Laura. You can try Oprah. You can try the latest counseling session. And I suggest to you that the things that will bring peace to your personal relationship more is Jesus. Humbly following Jesus. We value him for the Just give me a Jesus for a moment.